Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Vox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash earthmonth. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias with ProPublica's Dara Lind and joined this week by Umer Urfan. This is part of a, a cross-platform, multi-dimensional Earth Month happening here. Uh, and we also wanted to experiment with an idea we've been kicking around for a while, which is to do a kind of an all-white papers episode. Um, so we're talking today about, you know, a few different sort of big, important research papers uh, that have happened in the climate literature over the years, how they They've shaped our thinking, uh, the kind of implications that they have for the future. So, Ymir, uh, w- welcome to the show. And you also have the distinct honor and awesome responsibility of introducing <laughs> our first one. Great. Yeah. So the paper that I selected was a more recent review of literature around modeling climate change and economics. And this was written by the economist William Nordhaus at Yale University, who won the Nobel Prize for doing this work. His initial work was done in 1992, and the more recent paper is sort of an update to that model. But basically, his work is foundational to linking climate change and economics. What he did was essentially come up with a way to use a physical quantity, say a given amount of warming and temperature, and have an output of a specific dollar amount. Basically, this is the cost of climate change to society per ton of CO2 emitted. And from there, you can use that as the basis to develop all kinds of policy, like restrictions on emissions from cars, on whether or not it's worth protecting a town on the coast with a seawall and eventually developing things like a carbon tax. And so this is really fundamental to how we price climate change and deal with the risk. And, you know, and I think it's it's important to sort of understand the the social cost point, because the kind of most obvious way to apply that would be to say, well, if the social cost of carbon is $48 per ton, we're going to have a carbon tax at that level. Uh, but if you if you don't go down that policy road, right, as the, the Obama administration tried to do regulatory things, the Biden administration, I'm sure, uh, will be promulgating more regulations, it still factors in, right? So if you want to say, we're going to impose a certain fuel efficiency standard, we're going to regulate, you know, we're going to say new power plants have to meet certain efficiency standards, uh, the, the way the government does that work is um, 
OIRA uh, in the OMB still like cooks up a bunch of numbers and, and has to run the math. So whether you rely on a sort of explicit pricing strategy or or not, this kind of economic modeling winds up being central to the policy anyway. Um, and there's other things you could do, like, you know, just like put R&D money into a bill. Um, but it's it's still it's it's very important in a in a like a real world sense, not just academically. Can we talk a little bit? I mean, there are a lot of obviously kind of assumptions that go into projecting. I mean, Making predictions is hard, especially about the future. Um, you know, so so obviously there's going to be a certain amount of range for error and just kind of agreeing to kind of set things at certain, if not arbitrary, then you know, not necessarily 100% based in the real world data. But like a really central part of this model is the idea of discounting, which I admit, like looking over this paper, I expected to be a little bit daunted by the climate science. And instead, I had trouble even getting to the climate science because I was a little bit daunted by the economics because I, despite being one of the co-hosts of The Weeds, like, did not do super well in economics in college. So it would be really helpful to kind of talk through the assumptions that go into the concept of discounting and how that shapes some of the variations and assumptions about what policies are worth it to pursue right now. Right. Dara, you hit on a really important point there. So the key concept here is the discount rate. And essentially, that's how much is a dollar of climate damages worth 100 years from now to us now? And this is not simply an economic judgment. This is actually an ethical and moral judgment. We're talking about how much is harm to some people that aren't us or generations that aren't us are valued to us in the present. And so you're not just trying to, you know, calculate a specifically dollar amount, but you're also trying to weigh like how much of that you burden you want to shoulder today. Um, and obviously, yes, once you make that number, you are kind of hitting an assumption and there are variations to how much of a discount rate you can use. Uh, you know, the uh, Trump administration, for instance, uh, when they tried to calculate the social cost of carbon, they used a, you know, a very aggressive discount rate that valued it to essentially about one to seven dollars per ton down from the Obama era rate of about forty six dollars per ton. And uh, just last month in February, the Biden administration, they raised their interim social cost of carbon to fifty one dollars per ton. So, yeah, the numbers can move around quite a bit depending on just how much you value the future relative to the present. And this is kind of a, this is something that climate economics gets from classical economics, right? The idea that generally money now is worth more than money in the future. So it's not it's not just a kind of, you know, kicking the can down the road policy response in this particular regard. It's also, you know, it's understood that there are only going to be certain circumstances in which it's worth it for us to pay a certain amount up front, given that usually, you know, if we had the same amount of money now versus in the future, it would be worth more now that like that kind of us doing us investing up front for the potential future benefit of people who aren't alive yet starts to look a lot dicier as far as something we can even reasonably predict. Right. I mean, you know, it hinges on whether you expect your offspring to be better off than you, right? If you are, if your children and grandchildren are going to be wealthier, then the marginal utility of that wealth is lower for them than it is for you. On the other hand, if the damage from climate change is going to be much more vast decades from now, 
then yeah, it would make sense to actually shoulder some of that burden today. So it's a combination of both, both what we expect in terms of economic growth and development, but also in terms of what we expect out of the harms from climate change. And, you know, squaring those two is essentially how we kind of arrive at some sensible level of a discount rate. So, you know, one thing that that I've heard, or I, I guess this criticism comes in, in both directions, uh, but I saw it in a, a recent uh, post Noah Smith did on his blog from the kind of lefty direction, is that uh, Nordhaus's models, Dice model, I, I think he says that the optimal level of warming is something like 3.5 degrees Celsius, um, which is much, much higher than the IPCC recommendations or what most um, sort of environmental groups call for. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I hear from one group of people who are like, oh, like this Nobel Prize went up and all the environmentalists wrote about the importance of climate economics, but none of them are actually endorsing what this model says. Or then conversely, people are saying uh, there's all this hype about climate economics and they're using it at OMB and all these places, but it's actually dangerously blind uh, to the risks of global warming. And he's saying that like whole countries should go underwater and you know, like it doesn't matter because they're small or don't contribute a lot to to, to world GDP. Is that like is that is that your understanding of what's going on here? Yeah. So there's two basic ways you can approach this, and one is you know starting from the starting line, basically where are we today and what's justified and rational today, and the other is to start from the goalpost, the finish line of two degrees of warming, and then working backwards towards what's optimal and what will get us to those targets. And you're right that one of the runs of Nordhaus's uh, DICE model, this is the Dynamic Integrated Model of Climate and Economy. It's one of several integrated assessment models that are used by the US government. But in this one, yeah, if you do the cost-benefit analysis, it basically reaches an equilibrium temperature of about 3.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Now, there are criticisms of just doing the cost-benefit analysis at all to begin with, that you know, when it comes to the environment, even with diminishing returns, it's still worthwhile. That, you know, when we talk about human life, we shouldn't be necessarily pricing it, you know, with, with an economic uh, value. But uh, but yeah, and even Nordhaus, I think himself would probably acknowledge that, you know, that's not necessarily the way you would want to do things. This is just basically a starting point for developing a price on carbon and developing other policies starting today. But if you were to, again, start from the finish line, start from about the two degrees of warming and start with that cap and work backwards, you would probably arrive at a much higher social cost of carbon, probably up to an order of magnitude more, like in the $400 range. And so the question is then, how do you square these two? Um, and that's really going to be a big policy fight, essentially, you know, and that is the fight between, you know, the environmental groups and the econ economists, essentially, you know, wh which is what reflects the more feasible thing to do and the more optimal thing that we can actually do in the present. So, I mean, models like this, obviously, like we're looking at a revision, you know, the 2016 revision of the 2013 model, you know, there have been subsequent like estimates since then. How, in you know, when Nordhaus and others talk about the idea of this as like a starting point in developing policy. How has that actually worked out so far? Like, you know, they have a bunch of inputs for this model and a bunch of assumptions. They come up with this, you know, synthetic estimate of the cost of uh, the the social cost of a ton of carbon. How does that then get turned into an input in, you know, either a kind of technocratic, like think tanky, here is what the U.S. should put as a tax on carbon or in the like actual honest to goodness policymaking processes we know it in terms of, you know, CBO and OMB modeling. 
Well, the important thing to note here is also we haven't been doing this for very long. Like the first social cost of carbon calculated by the U.S. government was around 2010. So, um, and so the model has had some time to evaluate, but it's still improving. These are all still works in progress. That said, I mean, we do use the social cost of carbon to do things like calculating the corporate average fuel economy standards. Basically, when we do the economy-wide calculation for how efficient cars and trucks should be, we use the social cost of carbon of evaluating you know, potential damages from this and then essentially how much of a burden financially is worth putting on auto companies today. And so that's one way we can do that. Um, you know, you can also do this as a basis for developing a price on carbon. Now, you know, don't necessarily want to translate your social cost of carbon to a carbon tax because the social cost of carbon is the cost borne by society writ large, whereas the carbon tax is what you want to put on polluters right now. Now, there could be an argument for setting the carbon tax lower. There could be an argument for setting the carbon tax higher than the social cost of carbon, depending on how punitive you want to be and what other things you want to capture with it. But having that as a sort of an anchor point that lets to establish, you know, what counts as a reasonable level of policy or like what level of investment is justified now when it comes to things like building seawalls on the coast or retreating or what kinds of homes should be insured or whether we should be uh, rebuilding in certain areas. Once you understand that these costs are there, then you can sort of, you know, basically look at a spreadsheet and see whether it's worthwhile or not. So, you know, one of the things, you know, your your article delves into, right, is that the costs sort of differ from from place to place uh, because, you know, geography varies. Um, but then the other thing that that, as I understand, it keeps roiling the um, debate is that, you know, emissions are global in their impact in a way that differs from a lot of other sort of pollution type things so that, you know, if one country reduces its its emissions, that like that could, you bear all the costs of whatever regulation you impose, but the benefits are like diffused globally. So it seems like if you do a sort of rational analysis, like everyone is going to under you know under tax or under regulate or under invest or whatever it is, like you're you're going to do too little or maybe put it all into seawalls or or something like that. And you know how how does this like globally integrated like like how should we think about that? I mean that that's really difficult, and I think we'll get into that a little bit with some of the other papers we discuss. But uh, I mean essentially the way the U.S. calculates you know its social cost of carbon, it does factor in damages to other countries to an extent. Uh, one of the changes that the Trump administration also made in their social cost of carbon calculation was that they stopped including damages to other countries and uh, harms to you know low-lying countries that will be swallowed up by sea level rise, and that's part of how they arrived at a much lower number. So this is uh, so the uh, integrated assessment model does capture that, but uh, but but you're right that you know these are very very um, divergent depending on geography. You know some countries are going to actually benefit from warming to a limited extent, and others are going to suffer a lot worse. And a single number is not going to capture that disparity, and and it tends to easily be overlooked. The other thing that um, another criticism of this is also just that um, while this does use climate models, it tends to assume presume a sort of uh, steady increase or steady change in climate. And that's not necessarily going to be the case. This doesn't necessarily capture potential tipping points, accelerations, or step changes, or things like you know extreme weather events that can force large-scale um, relocations. So some of the major changes that could potentially occur due to, cl due to climate change that could be hugely economically devastating you know, are not necessarily factored into this, partly because the res resolution of the model can't capture that. Like, you know, the physical models are just not good enough to be able to, you know, predict what we don't know. But 
it is something worth keeping in mind that there's a fair amount of uncertainty around what the actual value should be. And over time, you know, we do expect the social cost of carbon to continue to rise. I mean, this just seems like a, you know, if you if you care about policy, but in a in a political view, right? Like that, you know, if you had sort of cozy elite politics, right? Everybody could look at this and be like, well, okay, objectively, like the global costs are real. We can't ignore that. We, you know, I bet if you asked most uh, scientists and most people with PhDs in economics, they would all agree that like we should consider the global cost. And then you could have this technocratic output, right? But when you bring it, kick it out into the domain of like, bare knuckled politics, the the Trump view that American policy should only consider the impact on Americans seems like pretty, pretty strong. And it's, uh, I think, fortunate. I, I feel like the Biden administration will probably revise this social cost of carbon calculus along these ways, but like probably doesn't want to like have a huge public argument about it that, you know, it's much more comfortable to be on the level of like, we stand by the science and like they are ignorant jackasses when like part of what standing by the science means here is like standing by like objective cosmopolitanism and the view that all human beings lives are are worthy and significant. But I, I feel like we also keep seeing that like America first is a pretty it's like a pretty good slogan. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing I would just add to that is just, you know, even in in our own self-interest, it makes sense to care about other countries because we're an export-driven economy. Like other Mm -hmm. countries have to buy our stuff. And if they're have run out of money building seawalls or evacuating people from the coasts, I mean, like we're not, we're going to run out of markets for our stuff and that's going to ripple back to us. So it does pay to invest for our own benefit to help protect other countries. I mean, I think that the kind of the, the, nature of geographic variation is something that we're going to get into a little bit but like kind of fundamentally i i think we're we've kind of been in this episode operating on the assumption that like because everyone knows that climate change is bad you know or like it's is going to like harm future global civilization like you know the idea of carbon having a social cost is a little bit like you know okay you can you can just kind of stipulate that but but what you guys were saying earlier gets to you know the one of the spe- specific ways in which you know it can be hard to predict not only you know what future cr- climate change will look like but human response and that's the difference between kind of extreme weather events and like longer term consequences like sea level rise gradual rise in average temperature as opposed to kind of the increase in things like you know, droughts, floods, hurricanes. How does the social cost of carbon, you know, which you were saying, I think Umer tends to focus more on the on the longer term, the kind of more gradual impacts. How does that relate to how we kind of think of the costs of climate change and the kind of, you know, more catastrophic potential impacts? I mean, because the social cost of carbon doesn't capture that, I mean, like we, we need to bear that in mind when we use this as the basis for calculation. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing is like, yeah, the, these more extreme impacts and the, the step changes tend to be more regional and, and geographically, you know, disaggregated. And so uh, we also need sort of a localized approach as well to measure the changes and, and the harms and from climate change as well. So um, in addition to the DICE model, uh, Nordhaus did develop a regional version of this as well called the RICE model. 
And so essentially that trying to basically get at that as well, just essentially that, you know, how on a place to place basis, how the social costs of carbon will change, trying to factor into the, these uh, more extreme events or the vulnerability to these other kinds of changes. The problem is, of course, that it's really hard to set a more localized cost of carbon like the you know, like we were already having trouble, you know, doing this at an international level if we want to capture risk um, across the whole world and aggregate it to certain countries. But like now imagine you know, say Illinois having a different social cost of carbon versus, you know, coastal Florida. Um, you know, how, how do you operate in a country when you're trying to build your energy and economic system and, and, and with these different kinds of prices and, um, you know, what kinds of weird incentives that will create? Um, I mean, certainly this is something you can't overlook, but like um, it's complicated. I don't really have a good answer as to how you would actually square this circle. I, uh, let's let's take a break and, and talk about talk about our second paper here. Talk about geography. Yep. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so I have here uh, Jose Luis Cruz Alvarez and Esteban Rossi Hansberg. Uh, their paper, The Economic Geography of Global Warming, came out as a, as a working paper most recently in February. Um, they've been sort of going through different drafts of this for, for a couple of years now. And what they try to do is take this very um, fine-grained view of the geography and look at the impact of rising temperatures on different places. And the impact varies from place to place, both because the baseline temperature is different and also because warming is not expected to be fully uniform. Um, they then do a bunch of stuff where I want to like put a big cautionary pin in it, which is that um, 
academics are interested in exploring academic concepts. And what they are really doing here is exploring the economics of temperature increase. Temperature increase is itself an important and noteworthy consequence of climate change. But there are other things that happen. And like this paper doesn't talk about the other things that happen. It talks about the impact of it being warmer on different places, which is obviously an important part of global warming, but it's actually not all there is to it. And I think leads them into some potential underestimates of things. But their basic point is that the impact of this uh, varies quite a lot depending on where you are talking about. Lots of places are cold and suffer serious disamenities uh, from being cold, and you know life might be better there. Other places, lots of places, it sort of doesn't make that big of a difference um, just in terms of the ambient temperatures. But the big issue is that the global population is not evenly distributed across this space, and many, many, many more people live in the places that are harmed. I think, I think they say that about 2% of the population lives in areas that they expect to be better off under warmer temperatures uh, versus 50% in places that that are said to be clearly worse off. And if you look at their maps, I mean, particularly in Mercator projections, but even in better maps, uh, those kind of far northern areas are not small. It's just that nobody lives in them. And so then a big question about adjustment has to do with how much can people move. Um, You often see this presented as like climate change will lead to mass migration, which is bad because people don't like immigrants. This is sort of a different way around it, which is that climate change creates a very serious, um, a bigger problem for people than for spaces. And so if you can reallocate the people to different places, you greatly mitigate the harms. And then, you know, there's there's like a lot of math about they put this in terms of migration frictions, which is not how immigration policy works exactly. Uh, but I guess it's, you know, it just is a stylized model. It's like the harder you make it to move, climate change becomes much, much, much more costly because uh, they're saying that like the the impact on productivity in Brazil, for example, um, is incredibly severe. They predict a 60 percent fall in productivity uh, related to a to a baseline scenario there, um, which is like a like a ton, uh, whereas Canada um, is mostly better off. The United States and Japan are kind of similar. Um, and so if more people can can move, you know, that's really good. I mean, just like historically, right? Like if everybody lived in the tundra, like that would be terrible. But like they, they don't. P- people historically have tried to locate themselves in places where the climate is congenial. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, issues in the way of that. Right. I mean, what I actually I mean, of course, it's stylized to talk about like raising the marginal cost of migration, but it is at least an effort to talk about two important uh, truths in the re- in research around the effects of climate change, which is one, like human beings have agency and can you know respond to changes in their environment and can try to adapt. It's easy to uh, to hear that and kind of think about the extreme geoengineering proposals or things like that. Like, oh, you know, if we just if we just science our way through, we can totally do an end run around the worst impacts of climate change because we're humans and we're really, really smart. Not necessarily at that level, but even kind of at the, at the level of like, 
if you are an individual in a place that is being threatened by sea level rise, you have the opportunity to move elsewhere in the country, to build a taller house, etc. You know, for I, I appreciate that they, first of all, like, look at that and then acknowledge that those human choices are themselves constrained. You know, in addition to barriers to migration, they're here talking about barriers to trade and to innovation, which are, you know, two other things that you can think of as adaptation strategies, but which also are at the, you know, national and international organizations do have levers to make those harder or easier. And so if you think about, okay, you know, tariffs as a potential way that the that a response to climate change would be you know would would be constrained because changes in global trading patterns so that you're no longer you know looking to get your coffee from like the Guatemalan highlands because they don't produce coffee there anymore because the because the combination of temperature and soil is no longer conducive to it like if that were an, a 100% frictionless shift, you would see a lower overall cost of climate change than you would if, you know, your trade regime was built, assuming that you were always going to be getting your coffee from Guatemala into eternity. And any attempt to import coffee from elsewhere ran you up against a, a, a massive tariff and quota regime. So it's, you know, this is all very speculative on their part, but it is at least a stylized effort to think about human agency in in future climate change adaptation, both at the kind of individual level and at the level of how are national and international bodies, you know, facilitating or getting in the way of the human response, the, the you know, the individual humans' efforts to survive and thrive in unequally warming, unequally threatened world. Mm-hmm. And one thing that kind of struck me about this paper also is that they talk a lot about innovation as a adaptation tactic. And, you know, they talk about how innovation means that uh, having less innovation means that hotter countries will be less be able to adapt and will overall have higher costs, which also, you know, points towards basically investing more in research and development on the technology front as well right now to mitigate these other things. And one thing that did kind of jump out to me is, um, was also that they pointed out that higher migration costs increase population growth. Basically, if people stay in the countries where they are in these um they, where they have higher fertility rates, they tend to have more children and the population on balance will continue to grow. Um, I'm not quite sure what they mean by that, though, what, what that means for um, overall energy consumption and the overall emissions growth. But I mean, certainly, I mean, I do think that that would probably have an impact as well. So this could be, uh, you know, sort of a pull reason for decreasing friction for migration that essentially that if we can move people from high fertility rate regions to places where they're lower, potentially, like we could also, um, you know, mitigate our impact on the planet. The, the fertility question was was a little bit, I mean, it struck me just how far removed from kind of classical Malthusian assumptions about population this is, right? Because like the... Yeah. You know, if your understanding of population economics is that you had to learn who Malthus was for history class, which is basically where I am, like the assumption is that more vulnerable populations are going to have population crashes, that like people will in fact lower their fertility in response to greater vulnerability, or that there just will be that like levels of child and infant mortality will be high enough. And what this paper appears to be saying is that like, the is that things won't be so bad that you'll be dealing with national level population crashes like that, but that everything we more generally understand about the higher carbon cost of a bigger population will still remain true. So we'll kind of end up in a 
in the worst possible situation where we continue to have, you know, a human drain on the carrying capacity of the environment without having, you know, in the in the really crude Malthusian sense, the like course correcting ability that nature sometimes has. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I guess the way to sort of describe it, right, is you think about a country like Brazil. It's a middle-income country today. They say it's going to be um, really hard hit by by climate change, but that doesn't mean um, like everybody will perish. It means that Brazil will slip to like the living standards of a Bangladesh or a Nigeria um, or you know maybe a, a Nicaragua, right? And but then countries at those lower levels of economic development have like less education, usually less women's autonomy, usually higher birth rates. I mean, there's a lot of I, I, this whole paper is like um, an incredible. Uh, like Jenga of assumptions and modeling of, you know, like of, of modeling how different things interact with each other. You get to the end, right? And they're like trying to show how a carbon tax impacts this. And they're showing that it slows warming a lot without necessarily uh, preventing it, but that that gives you much more time to do these other kinds of adjustments, um, which, you know, I think that seems right to me. Uh, but it is also true that if you chase like the logic of that argument, it's like, they're modeling the impact of the tax on the climate and then the impact of that on geography and mobility and like 17 other things. And there's like a footnote somewhere where it's like, well, the pace of technological progress also matters. Um, it's a, it's a very, it's a very difficult problem. I did think that the core point though, which is that like why this is so bad for people has to do mostly with where people live rather than with the increase in temperature, like per se, being so bad, right? I mean, because I think it can seem a little counterintuitive, right? It's like the temperature swings by much more than four degrees, like all the time, right? Sometimes within a single week. Um, and so, you know, I, I know people who are not 100% like denialists, but are kind of skeptical. They, they They don't quite see what's up, right? And it really does come down to the fact that, you know, the, the average change is still fairly large and that the population is very concentrated in warmer areas, in lower lying areas. And we don't have some kind of magical frictionless mechanism through which like the whole population of West Africa is going to materialize in Alaska and everybody is going to be just like thrilled. Uh, with with that situation, right? Like now, you can do things policy wise to facilitate people moving, but it's it's hard. Like it's hard politically, it's hard logistically, because uh, you're talking about places that don't have any infrastructure, they don't have any amenities. Like nobody really wants to go thousands of miles from their home just for no reason. Um, then the people in those countries also tend to not want to see huge influxes of of population. And you know, if anything, we've seen throughout the developed world, like the politics. Uh, becoming more and more um, touchy, I would say, about large population flows, even as the science indicates that it's like more and more important to assuring human flourishing. Yeah, I mean, I was until like about five minutes ago thinking about this as kind of just the cognitive one of the cognitive difficulties in climate change policy, perhaps like the fundamental one, um, which is the simultaneous fact that it's in some important ways already too late to take like drastic global action, right? Like a lot of the impacts over the next 100, 200 years are kind of 
baked in by what's happened over the last century and a half. Um, and every moment that, you know, every moment that like drastic actions aren't taken, it makes it that much harder to course correct in future. But also it's very difficult to understand exactly what's going to happen in the future and therefore figuring out, you know, setting the exact marginal social cost of carbon requires a lot of assumptions where you kind of have to already buy into the concept, buy into the model in order to have any trust on in the output. What the authors of this paper are doing is a decent model for like how human change actually works, right? Like there are changes in circumstances, there are responses to those circumstances, there are institutional factors that are going to make those responses more or less viable. Like that's a decent model. It also requires three different stages of assumptions about how the future is going to go. And so, again, by the end of it, in order to actually let that output guide your actions, you have to have a high degree of buy-in in all three phases of those assumptions. So it's only going to really appeal to people who are who were already on board with the urgency of it. Like sticking a dollar sign on on a ton of carbon is theoretically supposed to increase the the felt urgency, right? Like make it clearer that action needs to be taken. But the only people who are looking at that price tag are people who were already convinced that action needed to be taken. But I actually, now that Matt describes this with regard to migration in particular, I actually do think that that's, that is a maybe the most relevant instantiation of that problem. Because yes, in general, most migration is domestic rather than international. So like there, and you know, some of these are pretty large countries with a great degree of variation in altitude that could prevent, you know, that means that sea level rise won't totally inundate the country, variations in temperature gradients, variations in how much their economy as a whole will need to rely on agriculture or forestry in the future. Like there's a certain degree of intra-country flexibility here that means that we're not necessarily talking about everyone who is vulnerable to climate change is going to have to internationally migrate. But because that is also a thing that is likely to happen, and there are populations that there there are circumstances in which you know you can't internally mo- migrate your way out of the Maldives and you know be protected from sea level rise, that this is something where there is just there is no private sector alternative to immigration. Like it's, there isn't. It runs right up against a border regime that isn't, you know, it's it's like a, not exactly a constant of human history, but that has become very, what the historian Mania calls crustacean over the last couple of centuries, where it is, there is a lot of friction associated with moving from one country to another. And essentially the permission of the receiving country is required. Unless, you know, if we're actually talking about like immigration as opposed to just globally displaced populations, and we already have seen that it can be an optimal solution for national governments to just have large populations of people who are kind of permanent refugees in a second location because it's no skin off any individual government's nose if that's the you know if if that's the ultimate outcome for people but that uh, you know that's not an ideal outcome for global humanity as a whole so the fact that this runs up not just against the kind of the fact that you can kind of assume that we can't predict all of the consequences of something. And so it's possible that like some breakthrough will happen or it's possible that people will just be really creative and innovative and resilient. And so maybe the worst case scenarios that we envision for human consequences of climate change aren't valid. But in particular, 
the assumption we have that humans will respond to climate change runs up right against the fact that one of the primary responses to climate change isn't something humans just get to decide to do on their own. As a thought, just to add to that, I mean, um, the alternative to migration that they outline in this are the other two adaptation measures, namely trade and endogenous local innovation. Right. And so that does, you know, create an impetus for some sort of international framework for trying to mitigate these risks, like including an international wealth transfer as potentially, you know, like helping countries not just, you know, uh, adapt with their agriculture and seawalls, but like potentially doing things like sharing intellectual property and helping them develop better technology and doing that on our dime. Like to Matt's earlier point that, you know, it's really hard for us to justify a cost of carbon that factors in damages to other countries. But like this is clearly a pretty compelling argument for including that on our end, that basically that we if we build in the cost of climate change on our end, including things like helping other countries, like, you know, this will help reduce the need for things like migration and, and for dislocation and all these other things that if we do that on the front end now that like we we can kind of stave off some of the most dire outcomes for humans. Um, I think that this probably leads us into our third and final paper, which starts to kind of fill in the picture of what that what climate migration actually looks like. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I feel a little bit bad about this because in picking one paper to kind of stand in for a much bigger literature on uh, the relationship between climate change and migration. I've I've picked one that isn't kind of the broad forward-looking model of our previous two. It's a uh, much more 
you know, limited and kind of concretely empirical look at how climate migration is actually happening now between countries. Uh, it's called Climate Vulnerability and Human Migration in Global Perspective from uh, Martina Gresicat, Jack DeWard, Jessica Hellman, and Guy J. Abel, uh, and looks at looks at a set of data for binational migration, right? Migration from country A to country B, looked at based on how vulnerable countries A and B are to the impacts of climate change, uh, and basically finds that there's you know, to a certain extent, the correlation you would expect where people are moving from areas of higher vulnerability to areas of lower vulnerability from climate change. But there is the risk of what they refer to as like a trapped population, right? The, where because the some of the people who are most vulnerable to climate change are already in areas that are less developed, that are that have fewer resources, they are liable to be unable to emigrate. And so are, so will be, you know, somewhat marooned and either will require the kind of other interventions that Umer was describing, or will be kind of left to the ravages of global climate vulnerability. This paper, though, doesn't have the kind of acknowledgement of the institutional factors in migration that the authors of the paper that Matt brought in were trying to model in our previous section. It looks in migration A in this, you know, very strict binational framework, which assumes a certain level of intentionality that people are, you know, going down the, the global drop down menu of countries and making a decision about, you know, where the best place for them is going to be. And it doesn't really have any way to address the changes in migration policy that increase and often have increased the friction of, of migration. They're looking at a data set that goes from 2010 to 2015, which frankly, you know, feels a little bit not just in the U.S. context, but in the European context as well, like uh, a calmer time on the migration policy front uh, in the last half decade, both the U.S. and in part due to U.S. influence, uh, Mexico and Central America as well, and Europe and you know Turkey and Libya and some buffer states uh, have been engaging in increased immigration enforcement as the idea of human inundation, right, human floods of people coming in has become a more potent political threat. Uh, so it's, it does feel a little bit, you know, kind of already outdated to be thinking about migration in this like 2010, 2015, people picking where to go framework. But it does kind of illuminate the central contention of climate migration research so far, which is that it depends, right, that like, the initial theory 20, 25 years ago of we're going to have, you know, everybody who's currently in this band of latitude is going to move north or south. Uh, and, you know, and we'll end up with a population kind of clustered at the, you know, at the poles is not how things work in practice because of the individual level factors, because of the institutional costs. Uh, there is some literature suggesting that when migration is compelled by like an extreme weather event, even that isn't an immediate thing that people will try to pursue other adaptation strategies first. And only if those do not work, will they you know, ultimately decide that emigration is the proper response. And that in addition to the kind of barriers that you would expect in terms of the more developed, you know, more developed countries with more advanced immigration hawkery politics are going to make it harder to, you know, to immigrate, even if 
in an ideal basis, they are more protected from climate change, that there are kind of granular interesting differences in dynamics as well. Countries where land tenure is particularly vulnerable, uh, for example, Guatemala, which has like historical and political reasons, are places that are especially likely to see people emigrating in a pattern that you would expect consistent with climate migration. Places that have, you know, stronger histories of emigration anyway are more likely to emigrate, you know, are more likely to migrate as a result of climate, which makes intuitive sense, but does complicate thinking about this in any kind of huge framework for where will people go. I mean, I think that historical point is super important, right? That you saw when, like, like when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, that that led to a lot of immigration because people have been emigrating from Puerto Rico, you know, first to New York City and then to Central Florida for a long time. So it's like a well, like people might know other people. There's community resources, and also people just have the, um, like, have the idea. That like that's something you might do in in response to an event, even though like post Maria Puerto Rico was not like the most objectively low living standards place in human history. It's a combination of like a shock and a well trodden path to migration and uh, a fairly open legal framework. Right, um, generates that stuff. But you know, if we looked, uh, I mean, again at, at the paper I talked about, harms in Brazil. Are very very high, but there isn't like a giant Brazilian diaspora uh, anywhere in particular that I'm aware of. So it's a you know sociologically different kind of situation from what we've seen in in Central America at this point, which is that like a lot of a lot of people have have left Central America, and there seems to be. Um, like big, cha- we argue about exactly what drives the changes, uh, but like, but like the pulses move quite a bit in response to uh, natural disasters, in response to real or perceived policy changes in the United States and Mexico, because evidently people have like sort of have on their mind that like this is something that you might do, and and there's a lot more um, kind of sensitivity to to policy, which then, you know, it makes me wonder about the political feedbacks, because outside the realm of like pure hot takes, I just don't see the idea that we need to like alter policy to facilitate, you know, more optimal migration paths really happening anywhere. Even really in the advocacy discourse, the focus is on mostly sort of, you know, existing uh, like legal theories around migration and, and enforcement type stuff. And this just feels like something everybody knows, but like nobody wants to do work on or like try to open the conversation. Uh, I, you know, I think out of like a, a warranted concern that you will immediately be shot down uh, in, in the midst of a huge public backlash. I want to talk through this a little bit because at the risk of telling people things they already know about immigration law, it's like worth understanding the gap between the assumptions that uh, were in place when like national immigration regimes were developed and the way that we have been talking about human behavior through this episode, right? The framework for like immigration to the US, legally speaking, is either you are coming as a choice, you know, you are coming for economic reasons, you are coming to reunite with family, in which case your admission is 100% subject to the whims of the United States government, 
or you are being compelled for humanitarian reasons that line up with persecution as we understood it in a post-Holocaust context. Uh, You are being persecuted by your state government for a particular reason that you couldn't change or shouldn't be expected to change. And so therefore, the United States, regardless of your potential human capital in the economic sense, is going to take you in. There are a lot of ways, obviously, like, you know, when we talk about what happens when the state isn't really the the local power in your life, but an organized criminal organization is like, there are a lot of ways in which that framework doesn't meet current circumstances. But one of the biggest ones isn't just that climate change is a factor that is leading long-term economic disruption to uh, like is leading to long-term economic disruption for a lot of people. Um, But also the broader idea of what happens when emigration is compelled, but not for reasons that fit into a conventional U.S. framework, right? Like when it's not a lifestyle choice, it's not a, my life is okay here, but it would be better elsewhere. Or even my life isn't so great here, but it could be great elsewhere, but I cannot survive here. But the reasons you can't survive don't necessarily translate easily into reasons that another particular country should be obligated to take you. And it's worth thinking a little bit more broadly about that because there is research that like people don't usually, when you ask them why they left their home countries, they don't usually say because of climate change, right? They don't even necessarily name the environmental factors that would, you know, that would lead you to deduce climate change. Well, or you wouldn't say like, Agricultural productivity has slipped 0.5% per year compounding over the past. And this is and this is where thinking about the kind of historical uh, tracks that have been laid is useful, right? Because people will articulate reasons that make sense to them as reasons to migrate that are, you know, that they've noticed and internalized. And that isn't to say that, like, there's false consciousness going on and the real reason is climate. It's to say that if we're going to develop a rubric for thinking about climate migration, we can't just make the standard when you are asked, why did you come to this country? Your answer is because climate change was threatening my home. So thinking more broadly about this idea of compelled emigration and what can be done to, you know, either develop a framework for that or to mitigate it is important. But like, yes, Matt, as you were saying, it's not, it's, it's so far away from the marginal changes in current immigration policy that it isn't really being discussed. What I will say though, is you do see an effort to understand uh, migration and refugees in particular as a global issue that requires a more robust international effort. That's what the UN has been trying to do with its global compact on migration and global compact on refugees for the last like half decade. And the lesson from that is that, yes, it's obviously necessary, but you still need individual governments to buy in. And if they don't do that, then the idea of having a more robust international framework is kaput. So nothing that has happened out of that regime has really inspired a lot of confidence that you would be able to have an honest international, you know, like UN mediated conversation, which is what you would need uh, to really develop a robust framework for what do we do with these people who will not really be able to survive if they are unable to move beyond their borders. 
Yes. One of the questions here, though, is because there are these other historical, you know, political factors that like lead some people to be more likely to migrate than others. Like, is there a rule for the kind of, you know, we were talking a few weeks ago, Matt, about like the Biden administration's effort to deal with the root causes of migration in Central America? Like, does state capacity building lead to more you know, more secure land tenure, for example? Does it make it easier for people who are, you know, who are used to subsistence agriculture to instead find work in other sectors of the economy? One of the problems with this, with the paper that, you know, that we're (laughs) ostensibly talking about is that in looking at stuff only at the national level, it kind of assumes that, you know, someone who is the most vulnerable marginal person in country X will be insulated from the costs of that because they'll be able to um, to internally relocate because their government will support them. It doesn't really think about the problem of what happens when failed or callous or part or sectarian states just decide to write off a vulnerable population uh, and you know refuse to extend it the aid that is needed. And that's the kind of thing where if if that's the problem, then you can solve it with something other than a total radical repackaging of the global migration regime, right? You can engage in targeted foreign aid to build state capacity in more vulnerable countries, for example. The fact that that's being, that that's essentially the moderate solution here is wild because in every other circumstance, that's seen as kind of the long-term moonshot immigration approach. But it is in this context, you know, your, less radical, your less radical mode, because it is a way in which policy gets designed right now. It doesn't require totally scrapping the immigration regime and starting over. My only other thought to add to that was just that, um, you know, there there are still going to be people that are trapped and can't move. And over time, you know, that number might rise and uh, probably worthwhile to start strengthening, you know, those kinds of interventions now um, beyond just aid uh, to Dara's point, you know, like building up institutions and, and things like that to help cope with the people that just for for whom migration is just not a viable alternative, and if their ranks continue growing, just you know, ensuring that you know their their welfare doesn't continue to degrade over time. Agreed. All right. Uh, well, that <laughs> I feel depressed by this conversation. Actually, I think a lot of times white papers uh, make me feel make me feel happy, make me feel like we we have solutions. You've learned and something new about yeah. I mean, I think that this is kind of a problem with modeling, right? Is that because it's about quantification of intuitive theories about how the world might work, it's unlikely that you're going to come away from such a white paper with like a an insight into how the world actually works because they're they're working off the insights, not you know, not developing them. Sad, sad. If you're interested in one more white paper uh, briefly discussed, check us out on the Vox Quick Hits podcast. Uh, We've got a little bonus content on a completely different environmental issue. Okay, but uh, thank you, Umer, uh, for joining us. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, and the weeds will be back on Friday.